One, The Republic, written and narrated by Christopher Vale, theme song Lionheart by John Wright. Book available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. Chapter 9. By the Blood from Their Feet In early 1777, Washington moved the Continental Army into winter quarters at Morristown, New Jersey. Two weeks earlier, he had won his first victory of the war, defeating the hated Hessian mercenaries at the Battle of Trenton. Furious at the defeat, the British forces, under the command of General Cornwallis, had left New York to confront the rebel army. When Cornwallis reached Trenton, he found the Continentals had abandoned it, retreating to the other side of the creek where their artillery could easily defend them. Darkness was falling, and Cornwallis decided to wait until morning to attack. One of his commanders remarked, If Washington is the general I take him to be, he will not be found in the morning. Cornwallis dismissed the warning and set up camp for the night. The next morning, however, his army awoke to find the rebels had indeed fled in the night, leaving fires burning so as to give the illusion the army was still encamped. While the redcoats in Trenton stared at a phantom campsite, Washington led his army wide and back behind the British force to attack Cornwallis's outnumbered rear guard at Princeton. The battle had not taken long, with Washington himself leading the charge and shouting to his men to parade with us, my brave fellows. The Americans' superior numbers and the element of surprise overwhelmed the British and the Continentals quickly took 300 prisoners. With two quick victories, earned in less than two weeks, Washington thought it best not to tempt his luck and decided to rest his army for the winter. While America's most well-known soldier was battling the British, her most famous statesman was in France, hoping to find an ally. Benjamin Franklin had been dispatched to France shortly after America had declared its independence. The Americans were outgunned on land, but it was the British naval forces that were the real threat. The French Navy could even the odds significantly. For the French, the American War for Independence presented an excellent opportunity. They had begun rebuilding their military after having been so badly embarrassed by the British during the Seven Years' War. Now that England was distracted by her rebellious colonists in America, France saw a chance to get even. However, there was a real concern that their military was not quite ready to challenge their rival again. The navy France was constructing, one to rival the British fleet, was still a couple of years from completion. But more than that, the French obviously worried that the Americans might fail to uphold their end of the bargain. There was a genuine concern that the fledgling American nation would be quickly defeated, or that it might return to the folds of the king. Franklin attempted to allay such fears by pointing out the severe disadvantage Britain would find herself in if the French and Americans fought together. Writing to King Louis's foreign minister, Charles Gravier, the Count of Virgins, Franklin boldly asserted that by the united force of France, Spain, and America, England will lose all of her possessions in the West Indies, much the greatest part of that commerce that has rendered so opulent and be reduced to that state of weakness and humiliation. She is by her perfidy, her insolence, and her cruelty, both in the East and West, so justly merited. This was a pleasant dream of the French indeed. A Briton, deprived of all of her possessions in the Americas, would, as Franklin promised, be much poorer, and therefore much weaker. 
This would give France the opportunity it so greatly desired to return to the grandeur she had lost in the last war. The promise of defeating and humbling Britain was the carrot. But Franklin also reminded Virgins of the stick. Without French support, particularly naval support, the Americans would find themselves reduced to the necessity of ending the war by accommodation. If that were to happen, France, and Spain for that matter, would have missed an exceedingly rare opportunity to defeat the most powerful military on earth. Franklin urged Virgins not to allow this opportunity to slip by. If France would support the Americans, Franklin promised friendship and commerce in return. He further swore that the United States would not interfere with any French possessions in the Americas. For their part, Virgins and the French court barely acknowledged Franklin's existence and flatly turned down America's request for a treaty and French naval support. The truth was, France feared publicly supporting the Americans. They worried that their rebuilt navy was not quite ready to fight the British fleet. The last thing France needed was another embarrassing and costly defeat. Privately, however, Virgins and the French supported America. France opened her ports so that Americans could buy and sell goods, and loans were secured by both public and private institutions. Franklin realized that France's assistance, despite being unofficial, placed France and Britain on a collision course. King George would not tolerate French interference in British affairs indefinitely, and would retaliate sooner or later. Thus, the French would eventually become America's ally, and with France would come Spain. Together, the three of them could certainly defeat the British. Washington's army just had to hold out long enough for that to happen. A smallpox epidemic had swept the Continental Army while it was encamped at Morristown. Washington, who had contracted smallpox as a boy, was immune. But unfortunately, too many of his men were not, and they died in droves. Smallpox was not the army's only enemy that winter, however. Desertion took its toll on the ranks of Washington's forces as well, and by March of 1777, he had less than 3,000 troops left. However, as spring broke and the ice began to melt, the ranks filled again. By May, the Continental Army had swelled to 9,000 men, armed with muskets and powder fresh from France. The war in 1777 began much the same way 1776 had ended. Every time Howe thought he had Washington trapped, the Continentals would somehow slip away. Back in London, the government was tiring of Howe's inability to defeat the ragtag colonial army. The little rebellion that had begun two years earlier had already erupted into a full-scale war, and the Crown believed it was time for a different plan to suppress the rebels. Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne argued that the problem wasn't so much the colonists as a whole, but rather those rebels in New York and New England. There were more loyalists in the other colonies, he claimed. So the trick was to cut New York and New England off from the rest. Chop off the head and the snake will die. His plan was simple. The British would drive troops south from Quebec and north from New York City, isolating the troublemakers. From across the ocean, the plan may have made sense. But the realities of the terrain would make it much more difficult than they imagined. For example, there were no roads going down from Quebec, and thus Burgoyne's army would have to float down Lake Champlain, while a second force, commanded by Brigadier General Sillinger, sailed down Lake Ontario. The plan called for the two armies to meet in Albany, New York, where they would be joined by General Howe's army marching north from New York City. As if the plan were not tenuous enough, Howe had been given very little information about the strategy and decided instead to attack Philadelphia from the sea. However, by the time Howe's correspondence reached England, informing the government of his plans, Gentleman Johnny had already set sail across the Atlantic. Thus, neither Howe nor Burgoyne knew what the other was doing. After landing, Burgoyne traveled to Fort St. John on the Richelieu River and assembled his army. He then issued an arrogant proclamation containing an ill-advised threat. I have but to give stretch 
to the Indian forces under my direction, and they amount to thousands, to overtake the hardened enemies of Great Britain and America, the proclamation warned. While hoping to scare the local population away from supporting the rebels, Burgoyne actually galvanized them, as nothing struck more terror into frontiersmen than the thought of thousands of Indian braves scalping their families. But Burgoyne did not stop there. He further promised devastation, famine, and every concomitant horror to befall the rebels. To make matters worse, soon after the proclamation was issued, some Indians got drunk and scalped a lovely young woman named Jane McCrae, the fiancé of a prominent Tory, sending the frontier into a panic. Even the government back in London realized that Burgoyne's proclamation was an arrogant blunder. He quickly earned the nicknames Vaporing Burgoyne and Pomposo. From Fort St. John, Burgoyne's army floated down Lake Champlain, which lies nestled between the Adirondack Mountains and Green Mountains. His immediate aim was to recapture Fort Ticonderoga, which Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold had liberated from the British back in 1775. While Burgoyne floated down Lake Champlain, Sillinger sailed west from Montreal along the St. Lawrence River to Lake Ontario. After sailing across the lake, Sillinger's army and their Iroquois allies marched east toward Albany as planned until they reached Fort Stanwix, a rebel outpost defending the Mohawk River. A local farmer and militia commander named Nicholas Herkheimer understood the vast importance of Fort Stanwix. If the fort fell, not only would Sillinger's army have free movement to link up with Burgoyne, but the Iroquois would be loosed to terrorize the frontier. Evoking this horrifying image of bloodthirsty Indians scalping entire families, Herkheimer was able to rally his friends and neighbors to defend the fort, and even gave his life in the process. The determined rebel militia defended Stanwyck so fiercely that the Iroquois abandoned the British troops. The Redcoats laid siege to the fort, but the siege was broken by a group of rebels led by Benedict Arnold, marching west from Stillwater, New York, a town midway between Albany and Saratoga. Arnold managed to trick Sillinger by spreading false reports of a massive rebel force marching to the fort's relief. Abandoned by his Iroquois allies and terrified of facing overwhelming numbers, Sillinger retreated back toward Lake Ontario and thus failed to join Burgoyne in Albany as planned. Unfortunately for the Americans, Burgoyne was having more success than his subordinate. The rebels had fled Fort Ticonderoga under cover of darkness after the British had placed their guns in such a way as to make defense of the fort untenable. Burgoyne sent a force after the retreating Americans, but when they finally caught up with the rebel rearguard, the Americans inflicted devastating losses on the British. While the rearguard fended off the redcoats, the rebel army was able to slip away. When he was back in England, Burgoyne had devised a plan to sail down Lake George after he had captured Fort Ticonderoga. He would then capture Fort George, and from there take a road that had already been cut and cleared all the way to the Hudson River. His army would then sail down the Hudson to Albany. For some reason, however, he discarded this plan and decided instead to march his men south through dense virgin forests. It took Burgoyne's men three weeks of exhausting labor to reach the Hudson. Concerned about his dwindling supplies, Burgoyne twice sent out forces to find food. Both times the Redcoats were annihilated by colonial militia commanded by Brigadier General John Stark. Not having enough supplies to winter in place, and not wanting to return to Ticonderoga, Burgoyne decided to press forward toward Albany. Meanwhile, Brigadier General Horatio Gates had taken over command of the American forces in the Northern Department on August 4th and began marching his men north from Albany to meet the British. The rebels dug breastworks at Bemis Heights along the Hudson River south of Saratoga, New York. The Heights had high bluffs that would be difficult to assault and overlooked Freeman's farm, which was surrounded by difficult terrain of woods and ravines. The Redcoats had crossed over the river about 10 miles north of Bemis Heights and marched south to meet the Americans. Two days later, on September 19th, the British assault began with a cannonade. Benedict Arnold 
suggested that the rebel forces would fare better on the move in the woods instead of waiting for the Redcoats to come to them, while being pummeled by artillery. Gates eventually consented to Arnold's advice and sent Colonel Daniel Morgan's men into the woods on Burgoyne's right flank. Arnold and Morgan met the enemy at Freeman's farm, inflicting 556 casualties. Arnold pleaded with Gates to send reinforcements, but Gates refused, and by nightfall, the British still held the field. Arnold was furious, convinced that had Gates sent him more men, he would have completely destroyed the Redcoat army. Instead of attacking again the next morning, Burgoyne decided to wait. He had received word that, although General Howe was assaulting Philadelphia, instead of meeting Burgoyne in Albany, his subordinate, General Henry Clinton, would march a force north from New York City. Clinton had no plans to march all the way to Albany, but the hope was that Gates would be forced to send men south to fight him, thus depleting the forces defending Albany against Burgoyne. Unfortunately for Burgoyne, Clinton's army never marched far enough north to be a threat, and instead of losing men, Gates' army actually swelled due to the rebels claiming victory at Freeman's farm. Meanwhile, the British and American armies sat there, watching each other, but neither making a move. By October, Burgoyne was running out of options. He decided to push forward with another attempt to take Bemis Heights, and on October 7th, the assault began. General Gates could not stand the brash and arrogant Benedict Arnold and had relieved him of command, but the young rebel had not left the camp. When the fighting began, Arnold mounted his horse and galloped onto the field of battle, shouting fiercely for his men to follow him. Led by Arnold, the American forces pushed the British from Freeman's farm and chased after the fleeing redcoats, determined to destroy them. Unfortunately, Arnold was wounded during the fighting and carried away from the battle, taking the wind out of the American sails and allowing the British to escape. Burgoyne withdrew his exhausted, beaten, and dispirited army north to the heights of Saratoga, pursued by Gates. By October 12th, the American forces had surrounded the British, and on October 17, 1777, Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne was forced to surrender. The Americans captured 5,800 troops, 27 cannons, and 5,000 small arms. The British prisoners were marched to Virginia, where they sat out the rest of the war. The first report of victory at Saratoga took Franklin by surprise. He had nearly resigned himself to the idea that America was going to have to win her independence on her own without expecting any assistance from France. Instead, Franklin received the news that General Burgoyne and his whole army are prisoners of war. Before we continue, I wanted to pause and take a moment to thank you for listening to this podcast. I realize that you have a lot of options to occupy your time, and I'm truly grateful and humbled that you chose Home of the Brave. As you can imagine, it has taken a lot of time, energy, and money to create a podcast such as this, and I really need your support. Please share it with your friends, subscribe, and write a review. Also, I'd like to ask you to purchase the ebook that this podcast is based on. You can find Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic by Christopher Vale, that's V-A-L-E, at Amazon.com, or on my website at ChristopherVale.net. I have two more books that I hope to write and record as podcasts to tell the story of America up through the end of the Cold War, but I won't be able to do so without your generous support. Thank you again, and now, back to Home of the Brave. Franklin quickly wrote to Virgins describing the American victory as the total reduction of the force under General Burgoyne, and went on to outline the difficulties now facing General Howe. Virgins was delighted, and his attitude toward Franklin and toward America changed dramatically. Virgins' secretary reported to Franklin that the foreign minister said as there now appeared no doubt of the ability and resolution of the states to maintain their independency, he could assure them it was wished they would reassume their former proposition of an alliance. In other words, the victory at Saratoga had convinced the French to enter the war on the side of the Americans. This was welcome news across the Atlantic, especially since the war had not been going nearly as well for Washington 
as it had up north. Back in July, General Howe had set out from New York with 18,000 troops. The ships sat idle for weeks with the Continentals not knowing what they would do, though Washington assumed that Howe would sell up the Hudson to support Burgoyne's adventure. However, when the ships disappeared into the Atlantic, many in Congress, including John Adams, believed they were heading for Charleston, South Carolina. In early August, word reached Washington that the British were instead landing in Maryland. That meant that Howe was targeting the American capital of Philadelphia. Once safely ashore, Howe allowed his men to rest until the first week in September. Meanwhile, Washington marched his army south as quickly as he could manage. When the Continentals reached Philadelphia, Washington led them straight through the center of the town in a show of force to boost the people's confidence. Washington and Howe finally met at Brandywine Creek. The British hit the Continentals on their flank and nearly rolled up the entire army, except for the good maneuvers of the regiments commanded by Nathaniel Green and Pennsylvania's own Mad Anthony Wayne. Washington himself was nearly killed in the battle when he accidentally rode into a British command post. The Continentals were forced to retreat. Despite the pounding they took at Brandywine Creek, Washington was able to keep his army between Howe and Philadelphia. But things did not get better for the rebels. At Paoli, Pennsylvania, the British came upon Mad Anthony Wayne's men carelessly asleep. The Redcoats removed the flints from their muskets so as not to accidentally alert the rebels, fixed bayonets, and rushed into camp, slaughtering the sleeping men. Though Wayne was able to escape, 300 Americans were killed or wounded, with another 100 captured during what later became known as the Paoli Massacre. Only eight British troops were killed. Eventually, the more experienced Howe was able to outmaneuver the overly cautious Washington, and his army slipped around the Continentals and marched into Philadelphia. The fall of the capital sent a shock through the United States, but Howe soon learned that America was not Europe. Taking the capital city of a loose confederation of states was symbolic, but nothing more. The Continental Congress simply moved their business from Philadelphia to York, Pennsylvania. Add to that the fact that the Americans still controlled the Delaware River, preventing any British ships from reinforcing or resupplying Howe's army, and Ben Franklin appeared quite right when he quipped, instead of Howe taking Philadelphia, Philadelphia has taken Howe. Still, the loss of Philadelphia was terrible for morale, not only in the Continental Army, but throughout the United States. Battered, beaten, and dispirited, the Continentals moved into winter quarters at Valley Forge. While Howe's army spent the winter of 1777 through 1778 warm in the city of brotherly love, Washington and his men spent it freezing and starving. Washington chose Valley Forge because it was easily defended, and that is about the only good thing that could be said about it. 11,000 men made winter camp there, along with a group of camp followers. Led by Martha Washington, the camp followers were primarily wives and children of soldiers that followed the army from place to place. They would often assist by doing the washing and acting as nurses for the sick and dying soldiers. Among these women was Molly Ludwig Hayes, the wife of a Pennsylvania artilleryman, William Hayes. The army did not have much food, and few of the men had shoes, sufficient clothing, or even barracks. To add to the misery, there were no provisions to be foraged nearby. Since there were no buildings, the men had to construct their own. To make matters worse, there were no nails, and the logs had to be notched. The men slept on the cold, frozen ground without even the comfort of straw for beds. Their stomachs were always empty, as there was little food and no meat. The soldiers lived on a substance called fire cake, a thin bread made of flour and water and baked over the campfire. Washington did his best to find food for his men, but, unlike most wartime military commanders, he was always concerned about the rights of the civilians. Unwilling to simply seize what was necessary, despite calls from many in Congress to do so, Washington and his men suffered, but it was a suffering he was willing to endure, to maintain the principles of the revolution. Not only were the men hungry, but they were also shoeless with nothing but bare scraps for clothes. 
to see men without clothes to cover their nakedness, without blankets to lay on, without shoes by which their marches might be traced by the blood from their feet, is a mark of patience and obedience which, in my opinion, can scarce be paralleled, Washington recalled. While the men were enduring the winter, a Prussian officer named Baron von Steuben arrived. His credentials impressed Washington, who made him Inspector General of the Army, and set him to the task of making the camp more livable. Steuben designed the layout of Valley Forge, separating the living areas from the areas of sanitation and latrines, thus greatly reducing the sicknesses sweeping the camp. Also suffering alongside Washington and his men was the Marquis de Lafayette, the young nobleman from France. He had been wounded at the Battle of Brandywine Creek and was recovering at Valley Forge. Washington had noted Lafayette's courage under fire, stating, The Marquis is determined to be in the way of danger. There were rumblings, of course, as there always are in times of great stress, to replace Washington. Among some of the citizenry in the halls of Congress, and even among his own men, murmurs spread that Washington was not fit to be commanding the Continental Army. To quash the murmurs against him, Washington informed the press that whenever the public gets dissatisfied with my services, or a person is found better qualified to answer her expectations, I shall quit the helm and retire to the private life with as much content as ever the wearied pilgrim felt upon his safe arrival in the Holy Land. This was an obvious statement that Congress and the American public were not doing him any favors. The prospect that he might quit terrified some, especially once General Lee fell into the hands of the British. When Washington's statement was published, it all but eliminated any talk of replacing him for the duration of the war. The army survived the winter of 1777 to 1778 against all odds. That spring, they emerged from their quarters to begin training. Baron von Steuben set about drilling the soldiers and crafting them into a real regular army. Neither Steuben nor any of his men spoke much English. Thus, Steuben wrote his drills out in Prussian, and his secretary translated them into French. Lafayette would then translate them from French into English for Washington and his officers. Steuben also made use of the wives of the artillerymen, such as Molly Hayes. The women were trained to find water sources near the cannon's emplacement, and to carry water from the source to the artillery for use not only to quench the thirst of the men, but to cool the barrels of the cannons. Steuben had completely invented his title of baron, his rank as general in the Prussian army, and the tales of his intimacy with Frederick the Great. What he had not made up, however, was his thorough knowledge of French and Prussian military procedures, and nothing gave the old soldier greater delight than drilling soldiers on the parade grounds. After months of such drill, the Continental soldiers finally looked and acted every bit as disciplined and professional as a European army. When Washington marched his army into Valley Forge at the end of 1777, there seemed to be little hope for an American victory. Howe had conquered Philadelphia, forcing the Congress to flee. Washington had been badly defeated at Brandywine Creek, and when the army marched into Valley Forge, it was on the verge of collapse. With the long winter bringing death and desertion, many expected the spring to find no one left in the winter camps. However, things had changed for the Americans by May of 1778. William Howe no longer commanded the British Army and had been replaced by General Henry Clinton. The French had signed a Treaty of Alliance, becoming the first major power to recognize the young United States. Fearing a French attack, the British had evacuated Philadelphia to return to the more easily defensible New York City. In fact, the first American troops re-entered Philadelphia just 15 minutes after the last British soldiers marched out. Not only that, but General Charles Lee had been returned after Washington had negotiated for his release from British custody. Emboldened by the change in circumstances, Washington was determined to chase and harass the British all the way to New York and assigned Lee to command the advanced force attacking the British rearguard commanded by General Cornwallis. Lee was reluctant to take command, in fact, he seemed reluctant to attack the British at all. He initially declined the command, suggesting Washington give it to Lafayette. 
but when the young Frenchman leapt at the opportunity, Lee quickly changed his mind, demanding the command for himself. Washington eyed him suspiciously, but obliged. Alexander Hamilton, the ambitious young New York artillery commander, had been promoted to Washington's staff. He watched the entire exchange between Washington, Lee, and Lafayette, and thought that General Lee was acting childish. Lee had orders to attack General Cornwallis and the British rearguard when it began to move on June 28, 1778. Cornwallis and his men had barely made it to the road when Lee's cavalry reached them. By 11 that morning, about 5,000 Continentals had moved up to face Cornwallis and his 2,000 British troops on the road to Monmouth Courthouse. Lee gave his commanders confusing orders when he gave them orders at all. He appeared to have no idea what he wanted to do, nor where he wanted to go. Despite the fact that Lee's army had done little more than skirmish with the Redcoats, his men were soon in a full and extremely disorderly retreat. There was complete chaos when George Washington, who was riding ahead of his main force, met them. Washington was furious when he saw the army retreating and was not sure if Lee was a coward or if he was intentionally sabotaging the effort. Either way, Washington relieved him of command on the spot and took command of Lee's army himself. Lee's actions were so bizarre that there was some speculation that while he was captured, he had made a deal with the British to betray the Continentals. Washington quickly rallied the men and restored order. He formed the army up into easily defended positions on high ground and waited for the British. Clinton decided to strike hard and decisively. This was a terrible error, as the American positions were too easily defended with swamp to their front, woods to their left flank, and artillery on Combs Hill on the right flank. The artillery bombarded the attacking redcoats, shredding their lines. William Hayes was with the rebel artillery, swabbing and loading the cannon. His wife Molly had found a spring not too far from the guns and was rushing back and forth carrying pitchers of water for the men and to cool down the cannons. The cannons roared as Molly climbed the hill with more water. She screamed with fright as she saw her husband drop over and rushed up the hill to cradle his head in her arms. Relieved that he was alive and merely wounded, she gave him up to the stretcher bearers to carry off the field. Molly then took his place on the gun. Having attended the artillery drills, she knew her husband's job well. After the cannon fired, she quickly swabbed the barrel and then loaded another round. Molly worked the cannon as bravely as any of the artillerymen. In fact, she barely flinched when the British cannonball bounced right between her legs. One American soldier heard her remark that had the ball been a few inches higher, she would have lost her occupation. After the battle, Washington gave Molly Hayes a warrant as a non-commissioned officer, and the men began calling her Sergeant Molly. She proudly wore that name for the rest of her life, but later generations would know her as Molly Pitcher. By six that evening, the British had lost twice as many men as the Americans and fell back. The Americans were too tired to counterattack, and both sides went to sleep for the night. The next morning, Washington awoke to find Clinton had slipped away and escaped. Less than a week later, the whole of Clinton's army was back in New York. After fighting throughout 1776, 1777, and half of 1778, the British forces had gained no new ground and their position had not improved at all, despite having vastly superior forces. Now, however, the French had formed a formal alliance with the Americans. Not only that, but after the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, Washington knew that his men possessed the training and discipline to win an open field engagement against the British regulars. This was a turning point in the war. The Americans knew it, and so did the British. Realizing that their hopes would not be improving with the French entry into the war, the British decided to give up on the northern colonies and instead concentrate on the south, where it was believed more loyalists resided. In November of 1778, General Clinton sent a British force south to Georgia commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell. The British arrived on Tybee Island, south of Savannah, two days before Christmas. Campbell easily routed the colonial forces defending Savannah, losing only three British soldiers in the process. He soon had control of the city, and with it, Georgia. 
but Georgia was not the goal. Clinton wanted the port city of Charleston, South Carolina. It took another year for Clinton to make a move on Charleston. But in December of 1779, the bulk of the British army sailed south, leaving a garrison to prevent Washington from taking New York. The Charleston defenses had fallen into decay since the city had not been attacked in over three years. The men defending Charleston expected an attack by sea, and that is where the heaviest defenses were placed. However, Clinton landed most of his forces north of the city, and they rendezvoused with Campbell's troops marching up from Georgia. The British dug siege lines, cutting Charleston off from the rest of South Carolina. As they dug the lines closer and closer to the city, the American defenders would fire all manner of things at them. Broken shovels, flat irons, canisters filled with jagged fragments, pickaxes, shards of glass, etc., inflicting terrible wounds on the British soldiers. By early May, the British had dug within a few yards of the Americans. The two sides fired at each other, but now the British were close enough to fire into the houses of the town. A fire broke out and destroyed several buildings. The city surrendered soon after, on May 12, 1780. After taking Charleston, the British began to march west. On May 29th, 300 British soldiers under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Tarleton killed 113 men near the town of Waxhaw in a bloody massacre. The rebels had tried to surrender, but Tarleton ordered his men to march forward. They charged the rebels with the horrid yells of infuriated demons, wrote a rebel surgeon. The British even bayoneted those soldiers who had fallen to the ground begging for quarter and any rebel who showed any signs of life. The local church was filled with the wounded as the people from the surrounding community rushed to help. A widow named Elizabeth Jackson, who had immigrated with her husband to the colonies from Ireland just 15 years before, was among the volunteer nurses. Elizabeth's two young sons, 15-year-old Robert and 13-year-old Andy, were there as well. Little Andy was named after his father, the senior Andrew Jackson, though the boy never knew him. Andy's father had died at the age of 29, just three weeks before his third son and namesake was born. Elizabeth had lived through British oppression in Ireland, and her father had survived the British siege at Carrickfergus, when Catholics had fled to the stronghold during the rebellion against James II. Elizabeth had filled her boys' heads with anti-British rhetoric, impressing it upon them as their first duty to expend their lives if it should become necessary in defending and supporting the natural rights of man. Her oldest son, Hugh Jackson, had done just that. He was killed in 1779 while serving in the Continental Army on the front lines at the battle south of Charleston. Hugh was only 16 when he died. Elizabeth, Robert, and little Andrew helped tend to the wounded after the Battle of Waxhaw, and the horrors of it stayed with Andrew for the rest of his life. He and Robert joined up with the local militia soon after, eager to help fight the British. In April of 1781, Andrew and Robert were hiding from British search parties in the home of some of their relatives. A local Tory informed the British, however, and the Redcoats soon surrounded the farm. The soldiers entered and ransacked the house. The commanding officer sneered at the Jackson boys and ordered Andrew to shine his boots. Andrew refused, stating, Sir... I am a prisoner of war and claim to be treated as such. The British officer was not impressed. He swung his sword at the boy who defended himself by raising his hand. The sword sliced Andrew's fingers and scalp, leaving scars that would remain the rest of his life. The officer then marched across the room and made the same demand of Robert. Robert also refused and the British commander smashed the young man over the head with his sword knocking him to the ground. Andrew and Robert were taken prisoner and marched to a British prison camp 40 miles away. It was a hot April, and the prisoners were not allowed to drink any water on the way to the camp. Furthermore, they were given no medical treatment, and Robert's head wound became inflamed. Elizabeth rode to the prison camp and eventually convinced the British to release her sons. On the way back, Elizabeth rode one horse, a very sick Robert rode the other, and a shoeless Andrew led the two beasts the 45 miles home. By the time they reached their house, Andrew, who had contracted smallpox while in the camp, had also become ill. Elizabeth nursed both of her sick boys, but sadly, 
Robert died. Andrew finally regained his strength, and once he was out of danger, Elizabeth left to go and nurse others in need. Andrew never saw his mother again. Elizabeth died in 1781, nursing other boys. Though he searched for it the rest of his life, Andrew Jackson never found his mother's grave. Back in Charleston, General Clinton fretted over the possibility that the French might capture New York. He eventually decided to leave South Carolina, returning to New York with about 4,000 troops. General Cornwallis was left in command of the Southern Theater. Despite their enormous losses defending Charleston and later at Camden, the rebels in South Carolina refused to go away. Washington had given the command of the Southern Department to Nathaniel Greene, one of his most competent commanders. He had also promoted Daniel Morgan, one of the heroes of Saratoga, to Brigadier General and placed him under Greene. Greene needed to buy time while he rebuilt the Continental forces in the South, and he sent Morgan to harass the British while he did so. The strategy was maddening to Cornwallis, who desperately wanted to face the Continentals in open field warfare, where he was certain his troops would prevail. Early in 1781, Word reached Cornwallis that a rebel force commanded by Morgan was foraging for supplies near the town of Cowpens. Cornwallis quickly dispatched Colonel Tarleton to crush the rebels, and Tarleton chased Morgan and his men through the countryside. Morgan eventually turned to fight north of Cowpens, but placed his men in a terrible defensive position. He later claimed that he did this purposefully, to force his men to fight because there was nowhere to run. Of course, all of Morgan's men knew that Tarleton's troops had bayoneted the Americans trying to surrender near Waxham. The rebels at Cowpens realized that with no place to run, if they did not win the day, they would be killed. The two armies were pretty evenly matched, but the Redcoats did slightly outnumber the rebels. However, in his zeal, Colonel Tarleton failed to allow his lines to form properly before rushing his troops into battle. The British charged the Americans, expecting them to break ranks and run, but the rebels held fast, refusing to retreat. When the poorly formed British lines met the staunch rebel force, they disintegrated. An exacerbated Tarleton sent his reserves of Highlanders to break through the American lines. The Highlanders moved quickly, slipping around the American right in an attempt to flank the rebels. Their strategy was too obvious, however, and the American commander, John Howard, ordered his men to face about and will to the left to prevent being flanked. Unfortunately, this maneuver was confusing to the badly trained militia under Howard's command, and they began to march to the rear. In the confusion, other rebels joined them in marching to the rear. Tarleton's troops saw this and thought the Americans were breaking rank and fleeing. Eager to avenge their fallen comrades, the Redcoats quickly chased after the rebels, but instead of the normal British discipline, charged the Americans like a disorderly mob. Tarleton himself thought the scene was a panicked American retreat and called up his reserves to pursue them. As they did so, the Americans disappeared over the crest of a hill, and once there, were ordered by Daniel Morgan to face about. When the British topped the hill, they ran straight into a wall of American firepower. Suddenly, as if from out of nowhere, American cavalry, led by George Washington's second cousin William Washington, swept the British on their flank. When the rebel reserves joined the fray, the Redcoats knew they were crushed and began begging for quarter. A hundred British soldiers were killed and over 800 captured while Tarleton and 40 of his cavalry escaped. When Cornwallis received word of the complete annihilation of Tarleton's army, he immediately set out to find and destroy the rebel force once and for all. Unfortunately for the British, Cornwallis set out on the wrong road, marching in the wrong direction, allowing Morgan's army to escape. Nathaniel Greene also received word of the American victory at Cowpens and knew Cornwallis would chase after Morgan. Realizing that Morgan did not have enough men to defeat Cornwallis, Greene decided to link up his army with Morgan's. Greene wanted to strike the British with their combined force, but Morgan and the other officers talked him out of it. Instead, they convinced him to run and find more favorable ground. Thus, as Cornwallis approached, the Americans fled to North Carolina, leaving trails of bloody footprints on the frozen ground behind them. On March 14, 1781, 
Green found the ground where he wanted to make his stand against Cornwallis. Green set his men up at Guilford Courthouse, North Carolina, and waited for Cornwallis to attack. Cornwallis obliged the very next day, marching his army down the slopes into the small valley where the Americans mowed them down. Wave after wave of British soldiers charged the Americans, and wave after wave collapsed under rebel fire. Eventually, Cornwallis did force the Americans from their positions, but not before losing nearly a quarter of his army. Following the battle, Green fled back down into South Carolina, but Cornwallis did not pursue. Instead, he chose to march north into Virginia to link up with a force under the command of Major General Phillips and another under the command of former rebel hero Benedict Arnold. Arnold had betrayed his fellow Americans going over to the British and was in Virginia running roughshod over the defenseless countryside. Meanwhile, the American Confederation of States were pulling closer together, finally managing to ratify the Articles of Confederation, giving the new nation a constitutional basis. As for their French allies, Lafayette had met with his friend, King Louis, and convinced the French monarch to send troops to aid the Americans. A French force of 6,000 troops under the command of Count Rochambeau landed on Rhode Island. Washington desperately wanted to attack New York, but that would require naval support from the French, and Rochambeau had refused. So Washington devised a new strategy. Realizing that if Cornwallis could link up with Phillips and Arnold and occupy Virginia, he would effectively cut the United States in half, Washington decided it was time to return to his home state. Lafayette was already in Virginia, commanding a couple thousand men, but that was not nearly a large enough force to stop the British. All Lafayette could hope to do was harass them. Washington knew that the resources of the country were almost exhausted, and that the Continental Army was hanging together by a thread. He also realized that the war had to end soon before his army completely fell apart, and he determined that the Virginia campaign had to be the last. Cornwallis was in the Tidewater Peninsula city of Yorktown to rest and resupply his army. Washington received word that the French Navy was on its way to Virginia and wrote to Rochambeau that the two armies must move south as quickly as possible and link up. Nervous that Clinton would take his army south as well to disrupt their plans to capture Cornwallis, Washington faked preparations to attack New York from New Jersey, even going so far as positioning troops as if they were about to attack. By the end of August, the French Navy was sitting off the shores of Yorktown, and by the end of September, the American and French armies had traveled 450 miles to place the city under siege. Cornwallis was trapped. Nineteen ships of the British fleet had briefly attacked the French Navy, attempting to liberate Yorktown, but had been unsuccessful and returned to New York. On October 9, 1781, the French and American guns began shelling Yorktown, with Washington himself firing the first round. As they shelled the city, the French-engineered siege lines slowly strangled the British. During the night of October 14th, the Americans and French captured two of the British redoubts, with the American force being led by Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton and his men broke down the barricade and charged into the redoubt before the surprised Redcoats could even organize a proper defense. Washington and Rochambeau planned to perform a final assault on the British positions from the two captured redoubts. Realizing he was beaten, Cornwallis attempted to evacuate the city by sailing across the river on boats, but a storm forced him to abandon that plan. Trapped and outgunned, Cornwallis decided to surrender and on October 17th, sent an officer to Washington to discuss terms. The British forces surrendered two days later, on October 19, 1781. Washington did not have time to celebrate the victory. He did not think for a second that the British were ready to abandon their North American empire. After all, Clinton still held New York, and the British occupied much of the Carolinas and Georgia. What Washington did not realize, however, was how weary the British Parliament had grown of the war. The truth is that the British never imagined that the colonists could quit their regional squabbling long enough to create a central government. They certainly did not believe the ragtag rebels could pull together a real army 
especially one that refused to give up in the face of overwhelming odds to keep on fighting year after year after year. But the largest surprise of all, and likely the reason America prevailed in the end, was their near fanaticism for self-government. Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and a New York lawyer named John Jay were dispatched to Paris to meet with the British as peace commissioners on behalf of the United States of America. They successfully negotiated the Treaty of Paris, which was drafted on November 30, 1782, and signed on September 3, 1783. Interestingly, the United States of America was not recognized by the king as a single nation, but rather each state of the Union was recognized individually as free, sovereign, and independent. After seven years of bloody war, the United States of America finally won its independence. The country had been built up from nothing. It was just a forest standing in water when Captain John Smith and the others established Jamestown in 1607. The Americans had constructed roads and cities, ports and colleges. In the last few years, they had even created their own independent government, formed under the Articles of Confederation. But the tests for the young republic were not over yet. In fact, they were only just beginning. Thank you for listening to Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic. For notes and citations, or to support this podcast, please purchase the ebook available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com.